Hi, and welcome to episode 136 of the Untethered Podcast. Today, we have Dr. Tracy Tran joining us. Tracy is a pediatric dental specialist practicing in Los Angeles and Orange County, California, with a focus on tongue ties for infants and children, as well as craniofacial growth modification for children under five years old for issues related to sleep and breathing. She's a founding member of the ASAP Pathway, a Breathe Ambassador, and currently in the Tufts University Pediatric Dental Sleep Medicine Mini Residency. She maintains her membership with the AAPD, ADA, CSPD, and on faculty at USC Ostra School of Dentistry. Quick disclaimer, all information, content, and material of this podcast are the opinions of the speakers and is for the informational purpose only and not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified healthcare provider. Welcome to the Untethered Podcast. I am your host, Hallie Balkin. I'm a certified orofacial myologist, feeding specialist, and mentor. This podcast is all about getting your questions answered and collaborating with colleagues to bring you the most up-to-date information in the orofacial myofunctional therapy, tethered oral tissue, and airway space. I challenge you to keep an open mind and join my mission to get this information out to the masses. Let's get started. Dr. Tracy, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, you're so welcome. I'm really excited to be here and honored because I know how great you are. So thank you you for having me. You're too sweet. You're too sweet. No, I'm, I'm excited too. I know that our conversation today is going to be really fabulous and we're going to answer a lot of questions that I get asked a lot from some of our listeners. So before we jump into that, tell us a little bit about, you know, I know you're a pediatric dental specialist and you're out in Orange Orange County, California. Um, but tell me, how did you get into the airway tethered oral tissue expansion? You know, how did you get into this space specifically? It started maybe four years ago, maybe more actually five or six years. Um, it was after I finished residency, I met a friend who's an occupational therapist and She's like, you're a pediatric dentist. You do tongue ties. And I'm like, no, I don't. Why? (laughs) And she, and I had always seen children in my office at the time I was working in Texas. I was seeing a lot of kids with, um, with flat teeth erosion. So signs of chemical, um, chemical breakdown of the teeth and, I I also noticed that a lot of the kids I was seeing were on ADHD medication, but not just a little bit of it. Like I know the dosing of it because I know friends who take it. And usually for an adult, we're giving what 10, 15, 20 milligrams. And some of these kids were on 70, 80 milligrams. And I'm like, this cannot be good for kids in the long term. Um, So my friend, the OT, she was like, you got to do this. I mean, it can cause so many problems. These kids can have sleep issues and teeth grind and they can have ADHD. And I was like, okay, whoa, (laughs) these are a lot of big statements, but okay, where do I start? How can I look into this? So um, I took some courses from the AOMT. I heard Dr. Zaghi speak. I think that was like one of his first speaking engagements about this. And he kind of tied it all together for me. And um, I heard some other great uh, pediatricians, Dr. Bobby Gahari and ENT and t- uh, myofunctional therapists spoke about it. I'm like, okay, there's, there's a lot here that needs to be learned and there's no information out here. And I just dove down the rabbit hole. (laughs) Oh yes. (laughs) So here I am years later, I took so many courses. I can't even tell you, but all my friends, they they thought I was crazy. I think, but they're like, you're taking a course on myofunctional therapy. I'm like, why don't I just want to understand it? I'm not going to do it, but I want to know what they're doing and why and what kind of results they're getting. So that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, and kudos to you, because I think I'm very fortunate to have some dentists on the East coast that we work with, and they've also taken the Mayo course. And I think it really makes for such a symbiotic relationship when you may not be the one who's treating it, but to have that understanding of why we're recommending what we're recommending and what we're seeing in these pediatric cases so that we can all really come together as a team. I mean, it's just, it's so critical. And I always tell people, you have a dentist who's curious, but really isn't quite sure, like, see if you can link arms and go to a course together, like go take that course or recommend a course, because 
it's been so life-changing and eye-opening and our patients benefit. So it's, it's really cool. I love that you did that. And I'm laughing because I'm the CEU junkie over here. Like when I fell into the Mayo space, I went from taking more general CEUs in my field to taking like, I don't know, 140 CEUs per year in like the Mayo airway space. And I was like, I I couldn't get enough. You can't. What's and that? Still can't. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's incredible, but oh my gosh, that's, that's amazing. So now you work with these kiddos and what, what ages do you see in your practice specifically? Um, right now I've majority of the kids that I see are infants and babies and toddlers. Um, but I can see children. I do see children that are older up to 10, 11, 12 years old, if they need tongue tie releases, Um, I can do those surgeries for them. Um, Generally, those take a lot longer. There's a lot more involved um, in terms of therapy and then craniofacial growth and development. So the jaw didn't grow. They need more. They need expansion. I need an orthodontist involved. So that takes time to make space before I do a tongue tie release. So those are the older kids. And um, but yeah, so majority of the babies. I see our, it's, it all comes from seeing the older kids, what the issues are with them and how much work is involved to help yeah. treat them and get them to a place we want them to be functionally and anatomically and neurologically as well. And when it takes so much for the older kids to do, I'm like, why don't we do this sooner? Yeah. <laughs> Reach into the choir here. I'm a right? regular like, I'm like, how do we get these, these screenings at birth? How do we add this into part of the APGAR score? How do we make it more specific so that they're looking at airway, but differently, how do we get these screenings into the daycares and preschools? And, you know, when they do the hearing and vision, what about hearing vision and airway? I mean, why are we not doing these screens on these kids when this airway is everything? If you can't, I always say it's so morbid, but I always go, if you can't breathe, you're dead. So, you know, (laughs) why are we not looking at our airway? (laughs) it's, it's like that. And if you're not breathing well, you're almost dying multiple times throughout the night. And typically we don't experience this with children. It is rare that children stop breathing in their sleep. But when you see what we have to do to adults to help their sleep issues, oh, that's like, that's a whole nother thing too. They're having to do undergo major oral maxillofacial surgeries. They're technically breaking the upper and lower jaw. They're bringing it forward. They're, you know, having to expand, they have to score the upper jaw, open up the suture to spread it out and make it wider. And these are the things that are still getting studied and are not widely accepted yet from a surgical perspective with how to treat sleep apnea in adults, but it's getting there. But all the surgeons will tell you that do this and recognize that these adults need to be expanded they're saying, you can do this when these kids are younger. Like, why are we waiting? They're not done growing yet. Do it while the sutures are still open. So if anybody doesn't know what sutures are, it's basically our bones are in multiple pieces when we're first born, you know, like babies with soft spots. That's what I tell the parents, you know how your baby's got soft spots on their head. They got one on the roof of their mouth too. And that soft spot is where the bone grows and it fills in we can actually modify their growth and spread the palate, the upper jaw out and help to bring it forward before those soft spots fuse because eventually they're going to fuse. And so that's where I determine when to do treatment because those fuse at different ages and different times. So when you understand the growth and development of the face and the head, you recognize, okay, we can actually use this to our advantage. Let's do it. Why are we waiting? Um, so it's kind of what I've been diving deep more, like <laughs> a lot deeper into lately. I love that. So I don't I just see that. the babies. I do early expansion for the, the older kids, at least under the age of five, because that's when most of the growth and development happens. And, so. and this is like what I preach all the time. And it's so hard to find providers that will expand children. It's not common that you'll find someone who expands a two-year-old or a three-year-old, yeah. you know, and I took, um, my now six-year-old when she was four and mm-hmm. we put her into an ALF appliance and to see the growth that she got was phenomenal. I think that 
now I just had, um, a dentist slash orthodontist looking at her case when I was at the dental festival and we were presenting together and he was like, I think she needs like a lower lip, lip bumper on her, you know, on her mandible. And I was like, okay, all right, we'll do it. Like, he's like, but otherwise she looks great. And I was like, I just love hearing that because look at yeah. what we've done for this child. And, you know, now I'm like, trying, we just moved to South Florida and I'm trying to find a provider who will expand my three and a half year old, because I know that she needs, she needs expansion too. So it's, it's so challenging. It is. It is. But I'll tell you why. Um, it, it makes a lot of sense why it's challenging. One, most dentists are not taught this in our traditional dental pro- program. So yeah. in traditional dental education, we are taught about basic orthodontics, like mechanics of movements on a very superficial level. Um, we always say, we think maybe the orthodontists want to keep it from us, <laughs> but no, I'm, I'm kidding about that. But that's one thing. The second thing is, is growth and development. We don't really get to dive deep into growth and development of the oral facial complex. And since most of it occurs when they're really young under the age of five and six, that's something that if you don't understand that tidbit, you're not going to value doing it earlier. So a lot of dentists might not value it. And then the third thing is, is this is a pediatric population. It takes special people, as you know, Oh yes. Oh yes. <laughs> it takes special personalities and patients to deal with this population. And because you're not dealing with the child alone, you're dealing with the parents too. And when you have a parent with a child who's not sleeping well, feeding well, or speaking well, you've got an anxious parent because they've already been through a lot. They're probably not sleeping well themselves because their child isn't sleeping well. And so, you know, sometimes they come in and they're, they're just like, they're, they're ready. They want to do it. And they're, they're just, they can be a little pushy sometimes, which I totally understand. They, they want something done for their child. Now they don't want to wait. And then they get a dentist or orthodontist who says, no, let's just wait. And they want to trust their provider. They do. They love their provider. I would say most dentists and orthodontists, we're really great with our patients on a personal level. We, we're, we're really good with interacting with them. And so they love and trust us. But then, you know, so when we give our recommendation and we don't know if it's the right recommendation or we're just saying, you know, it's fine. They'll grow out of it. Typically it's because we don't know what to do. And so Mm. we put it off and and I used to do that. So I I get kids coming in with teeth grinding and erosion. And I didn't know there was acid reflux related to this. And then I learned about it physiologically and it made sense, but I was taught in residency that they would just grow out of it to tell them that. Now for me personally, I never felt comfortable with that which is why I went down this rabbit hole. Like, no, this is not okay. This is happening for a reason. This is going to have long-term consequences. I can see their bite changing with how much they're grinding their teeth. And if this child is not sleeping well, we're putting them on medication. I don't want to wait. Let's, I want to do something now for these kids because I know I can, I know it's possible. We're just, you know, there's not a lot of research that is read amongst dentists as well. So when we don't know the research either, you're not going to be so keen on jumping on doing something without evidence because, you know, we, I I live in California, right? This is very litigious state. You have to be very careful with what you do and why you do it and how you do it and not have parents come after you because it didn't turn out the way they wanted. Like it's, it's a delicate balance that you have to maintain with helping them to understand Like, listen, there's not a ton of research there is, and it makes sense, but I spent a long time in the consultation, educating the parents because knowing growth and development of cranial facial complex. I mean, like I said, other, a lot of other dentists don't even know it. So then I have to explain it to a parent who doesn't know it. So I've had to get creative and find ways to help them understand. No, I, I love that you do that though, because it's, I was, I'm actually sitting here creating my Mayo course, like trying to like 
finish it up. And I was spending I don't, I always say like, I don't work on the weekends. No, this weekend, I was all about like the anatomy and physiology. So here I am making all of these slides and I have like the hard palette up in front of me right now. Um, and it's funny, you know, like we, as myofunctional therapists, SLPs, OTs, you know, RDHs, we're not moving bone. Right. But we are influencing through the soft tissue, through the muscles. And so, you know, I was sitting here and I was like, you know, it's just, it's so interesting to me because I was trying to remember back to what they taught us in undergrad, in grad school, because we work on swallowing. So obviously we had some intense anatomy and physiology, but the way that we were taught again, like you said, it's, it wasn't for, it's not in the way that we need to know it for, you know, orofacial myology. It's not in the way that we need to understand it to work with airway centric dentists or orthodontists or, you know, release providers and body workers and whatnot and the whole team. So it's, it's a whole different view on the anatomy and physiology of what should be. And then of course, on top of that, we all know that our jaws are shrinking every single, you know, every single generation, they're just shrinking more and more right now. And it's the unfortunate reality that we're living in. I think I saw, and of course, fact check me. I saw this on Instagram, but <laughs> I saw something this weekend that said like with every generation, our jaws are shrinking. And in order to turn that around for, you know, one particular family, it'll take three generations. You know, if we correct it now, we won't see those corrections until about three generations down the line in the genetic code. And I was like, wow, that's, it's fascinating. Uh, it's <laughs> that would be very fascinating. It's, it's hard to do a study on something longitudinal right. like that. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, you know, that kind of stuff. I definitely am like, yes, I believe that, yeah. but I'm so careful not to talk to my colleagues that are yeah. very evidence-based about such things, you know, and we have to be mindful of that because one of the biggest problems I see in this space is that there's disagreements amongst providers and we need yeah. to start bridging that gap between mm-hmm. providers who know and understand function and providers who aren't open to it because they hear such extreme statements and they're like, well, how, how do you know that? This is just, it's just an opinion. And then they don't want to listen after that. So, so I've always spent so much time. I've made it a point to know the research, know the studies, help them to understand, like there's studies on this. We, we know what's going on. I mean, and I, I let them know, I stay up to date with what's going on. Like I just was in Boston for a mini residency and one of the speakers was Dr. Stanley Liu, and he's a oral surgeon with an ENT fellowship. And he, he treats adults with sleep issues and, and teenagers as well. But he, he sees like how myofunctional therapy, which he trained under Dr. Christian Guillemot. So mm-hmm. he, that's one of his mentors and who passed away, unfortunately, back in 2019. So rest his soul. But he was one of the biggest sleep medicine doctors, ENT surgeons out there and did so much research. And, um, and he was the one who found that myofunctional therapy made a big difference in how outcomes played out in the long term for these adults. So we're making space for the airway. We're going to move the upper and jaw forward, lower jaw forward. That's called maxillary mandibular advancement. Okay, great. It relapsed. Why did it relapse? Well, oh, okay. They're they're not functioning well. Let's do myofunctional therapy. Oh, we're doing the myofunctional therapy, but they're having a hard time. Why are they having a hard time? Oh, the tongue's tied. They can't lift the tongue. Okay, trying to lift the tongue. Okay, they're doing it. Still some relapse. Oh, they're mouth breathing. Why are they still mouth breathing? They can't get the tongue up because the palate is too narrow. Oh, we have to expand too. We can't just bring the upper and jaw, lower jaw forward. We have to widen it out and make tongue space as well. There's different dimensions in our face. We can't just look at it as a two-dimensional space. We have to look at it in multiple dimensions. And when you understand how function plays a role in all of this, then you start and you understand how that function develops when they're a child, you're like, this started so early on. (laughs) It started started in the womb. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I educate on that. I say people are probably going to get tired of me saying it, which means that I'm not saying it enough still, but you know, <laughs> we, we start swallowing 12 weeks in utero yeah. and that just, I think helps people realize how quickly like end of first trimester, 
those things are set. And we are then born with a swallow that we're going to have for life unless we change it. And obviously that's influenced by our, nat- our anatomy. And so I think it's, it's, you know, we have these babies who are born with open mouth postures and we can still, like you were talking about the suture lines, we can still make a lot of change in that first year of life, especially in the first six months, it appears, you know, from our practice, if we get, if we have a tongue that is able to rest on the palate, if we have a nasal, you know, if we, if nasal breathing is possible, you know, if they're not, they're not blocked and it's just, like you said, it's so much easier. I mean, it feels like a lot of work. I'm not going to downplay the amount of work it is for a new Absolutely. mom. Who's trying to feed the, who's trying to feed a baby or get a baby to sleep well, you know, but right. it's so much easier to do it on the first year of life than to have these compounding issues snowball over, you know, every yeah. single year, it's just more and more issues into teen adults, you know, it's just, it's, and I'm that adult relapse case. So it's, it's interesting that, you know, as the wife of a patient, as the patient myself, as the professional, as the mother of two tongue tied babies and Mm -hmm. one who's been through early expansion, you know, it's, it's very eye opening. It's very eye opening. And if you had told me any of this 10 years ago, I would have thought you were nuts, but (laughs) here we are. You're even like, why, why do I have to do all of this? This is too much work. This is crazy. What do you mean? They get expanded between six, nine. I didn't get expanded till I was like 10 or 11. Why are you talking about? Yeah. By then you're like, especially females, we develop, you know, a lot sooner than males usually. So 10, 11, they're expanding. You might've already had some fusion of that suture and it might not have been enough. And here's another thing that people need to understand when you expand, is it dental expansion or skeletal expansion? And that needs to be understood. What does that mean? How are we assessing that? You know, one of the things that we do now, we take a comb beam CT, you know, the imaging, it goes around the head. It's a whole 3d rendering of the entire head and neck. It's amazing. It's such amazing technology. When you actually evaluate on the comb beam CT, you can look at the palate and see how wide it is. And so you take a comb beam CT before, and then you take a comb beam CT after. And this is what the researchers are showing now. They're showing sometimes you don't get skeletal expansion. Even if you're putting an expander in there and you're breaking the job, opening up the suture again to allow expansion, how is that expander being placed? what kind of expander are they using? And this is stuff that I learned from Dr. Audrey Yoon um, multiple times, but she also taught in this course that I was in over the weekend and she, she's done it all and she shows her mistakes. That's my favorite thing about her is she tried everything multiple times. She'll do the same thing over and over again and see what the mistakes are and how it didn't work and what we need to do different to get the best results. And so That's where a lot of dentists, I think, are, and orthodontists are kind of on the fence about it. They're like, they can see mechanically, they can understand the need for expansion. They just can't see mechanically how you do it. Mm -hmm. And they might not know that they're doing dental expansion. So tipping the teeth out to make the arch look wider. But when you look at the bone, the bone didn't get wider. And so if the bone didn't get wider, you're really not doing much because Mm -hmm. part of the reason is that the roof of the mouth is also the floor of the nose. So when somebody grows narrow, they also grow a narrow nose. So the nasal cavity is smaller. And if the nasal cavity is smaller and their problem is they can't breathe through their nose. Do you think a dentist is going to, or orthodontist who doesn't understand this is going to treat it the right way? They're going to be like, oh, you can't breathe through your nose. That's an ENT problem. I can't fix that, but they forget like when you expand actually true skeletal expansion, you're expanding the floor of the nose as well. You're creating space in the nasal cavity. I mean, that was one of the studies that Dr. Audrey Yoon did. She, or not her, I'm sorry. It was another doctor out of Boston university. Um, He showed that for every one millimeter of true skeletal expansion of the palate, you actually get an increase in and 2.4% of nasal volume. So if we're expanding about eight to 10 millimeters, that means we're getting 25% increase in nasal volume. That means they can breathe better. That means they don't have to mouth breathe anymore because they can breathe through their nose. So if this gets missed and you go to a dentist that just expands and creates that tongue space, for this is for older children. These are people who are basically done growing 12 and up, I would say 
if they don't get true skeletal expansion and that palate doesn't get to widen out, then they're going to keep mouth breathing if they still can't yeah. nasal breathe. And yeah. that's where your job gets harder. You as the myofunctional therapist, you understand that. And I don't like to call, I don't, I won't even call you myofunctional therapist. You're a speech language pathologist that does myofunctional therapy. Cause I have to remind a lot of people it's a tool. Myofunctional yeah. therapy is a tool. There's a lot of different yes. therapies out there. And this is a tool that not all speech language pathologists learn either. And so if, if you understand how myofunctional therapy works and you're trying to get them to nasal breathe and you know, they don't have the space, what do you do? Your hands are tied. You tell your patient, Hey, I sent you to get expansion, but they didn't really expand. They tip the teeth. Like you're not the orthodontist. The orthodontist is going to get mad at you. Right. And this is, I, I see this happen and I'm like, Oh, this is where we need to educate more orthodontists and dentists on this. And then we need to educate more speech language pathologists or dental hygienists or occupational therapists that do myofunctional therapy. We need to educate them on what the orthodontist looks at or what the general dentist might look at and where the disconnect is and how we communicate with each other. So that's what we talked about earlier, right? I, I'm a pediatric dentist, but I took a course on myofunctional therapy. Do I want to do it? No but I do want to communicate to them. And if I want to communicate with them, I have to know their language and I have to understand what they're doing. And so what I love that's been happening lately, there's a lot of airway symposiums and they're incorporating all of these aspects. And so you as, you as the therapist, you get to learn about what the dentist is supposed to do. And the dentist gets to learn what the therapist is supposed to do. And then now we have sleep physicians coming. They understand sleep and sleep profiles. And they can tell us like, you know, this is a true sleep issue that is likely related to, you know, anatomic airway and function issues, or it could be central sleep apnea. And so we have to recognize that there's differences in types of sleep issues. And we can't just be a hero to everyone getting a proper diagnosis to start is extremely important. And it takes a team of people to do that. So when the parents come to me, I let them know, Hey, I can do this. I can see where the problem is, but I need other people on board. And I need you to know that these people have to be on board. Otherwise I'm not going to do it because I know what will happen in the long term. They're going to, their head's going to be spinning. I don't understand. I spent all this money. I did it. It didn't work. Well, there's a reason why it didn't work. Yeah. I told you, you gotta, you gotta go to the people I send you to, because I know they're educated in it. I know they get it. So like I said, I could talk on and on about this. <laughs> no, I, I love that. And I, I love your passion behind it. And I think it's, it's also, you know, I get asked all the time, well, how do you get people to, you know, go to your, your preferred providers or whatever you want to call it, the people who, you know, are in this airway space who understand, who are going to, you know, really help the patient full you know, full circle. We're going to all, we're all a piece to the puzzle, right? It's a puzzle right. and we're all a singular piece. We can't do this individually, any one of us. And so I basically say, if you explain it to parents and you tell them like all, like all in or nothing, you know, obviously parents can make their own choices, but if they mm -hmm. truly want optimal results, like don't come back to me and say, Hey, I thought we were going to get X, but we got Z when, right. you know, in order to get X, here's the plan. Mm -hmm. If you don't want to do a, B, and C, you might end up with, you know, Y or Z, but you're not going to get X. You know, it's sort of yeah. like one of these things where I think we just have to be very um, forthcoming and we mm -hmm. have to be honest in our conversations. And we also have to tell parents there's no guarantees, right? But we can all, when we have a team working together, and, it's, mm -hmm. and especially when we're working with early intervention, I mean, really mm -hmm. the sky's the limit. There's so many more interventions and opportunities, I think at our fingertips compared to an adult like myself, where <laughs> I went into an appliance for two years. And then I went into, you know, Invisalign to straighten my teeth for a year after that. And I think it actually, I was talking to, um, Dr. Lane Martin and Dr. Um, why am I spacing Gelb, Dr. Michael Gelb, okay. I was presented with them last weekend. And they were like, well, yeah, you know, we see that it actually 
creates retraction. When you do those last couple, sometimes when you do the last couple trades of the Invisalign, we see that it actually starts to retract things back. That's trying to close up those holes. Right. And so, you know, and they were kind of, they're like, don't quote me on that, but they did say it a couple of times during the during our time together. And I was like, oh man, you know what? I actually noticed that about myself. I noticed that it closed up some spaces, but it also where I could bring my tongue slightly forward before I now feel it sitting a little further back. And so, and I'm one of those cases where we've done the adult expansion. I had that, you know, that relapse, um, <clears throat> they put on permanent upper and lower lingual bars and <clears throat> excuse me. And that, I had them take them off when I was 30 and they said they would fall off when I was 20. They didn't. And I was like, take these off. I can't clean my teeth. My teeth immediately started to shift. And that's when I knew something was up. And so I was kind of on my own journey to figure out why, why is this happening? Why am I a mouth breather at night when I'm not during the day? You know, why am I just very restless sleeper? I don't wake rested all the things. Right. And when all was said and done, I feel a lot better than I did, but also my nasal breathing while it's improved is not where it needs to be. So I'm on this, this journey now where I need to have like my turbinates reduced because um, I might be able to help you with this. Oh, great. So, well, you, you spoke <laughs> you to do. her, you spoke to her already. Um, Mary Ellie Mitchell, she's an uh-huh. occupational therapist. This, this kind of dives into like a more, um, abstract way of treating, which I think a lot of people. Okay. So let me, let me just say, this is probably a neurological thing and I'll explain mm-hmm. why neurological, because when we breathe, we have chemoreceptors, right? Respiratory chemoreceptors that tell our brain like, oh, this is how we normally breathe. What it, what it detects is when we're off from normal. So you've had this normal breathing your whole life and it hasn't been probably the optimal breathing. And now you're trying to breathe better, but your own body's mechanism for figuring out what your normal is, is already set in its way. Mm-hmm. So if you want to change that pattern, that takes neurological repatterning, which is really abstract, right? Like, how do you do that? That doesn't make sense. Um, it takes practice and it takes understanding. Okay. How do we get the nervous system to recognize that this is our norm? And so you probably have to do a lot more during the day to get your nervous system to recognize what normal is. And, and you are, you're like doing the nasal breathing, but you know, we, it's such a balance, right? There's, there's this homeostasis that happens in our body. And if you want to change your normal, like we don't know how to do that, (laughs) but you know, I think when it comes to neurological sensory type things, you get some occupational therapists that really understand that that's, that's their wheelhouse, right? When you talk about sensory issues, we're talking occupational therapists. So Mary Ellie Mitchell actually worked with this. Um, I, I dove into this a few years ago. Um, Lois Laney, she's a dental hygienist, but she does a lot of neurological stuff. And I took her course and she's, she's a really kooky woman. Like sometimes when you, when I first met her, I'm like, wow, she seems so out there. But when I looked at what she does and I thought about it from a scientific and physiologic standpoint and anatomic standpoint, she's addressing the cranial nerves. We have 12 of them, right? Yeah. 12 cranial nerves in our head. And this whole thing with breathing is like a dance. You've got chemoreceptors in your nose that helps you detect when your breathing's off. And you also have receptors in your muscles that when it expands, it tells you when your breathing is off. So your intercostal muscles, and then these send signals to your brain that tells it to either contract more or less or relax based on what your breathing is. And there's the same receptors in your diaphragm too. So what innervates all of this? What, what, what part of the nervous system helps with all of this? And there are always branches of the cranial nerve and there's 12 of them. So sometimes you have to kind of reset or rewire those cranial nerves and there's a way to do it. And it's by stimulating all of them at the same time or shutting them off. Or, um, I guess the, I don't, I don't like to say shutting them off because it's not like you're shutting down your nervous system, but in a sense, that's, that's the approach. And, and it made sense to me. I'm like, okay, by activating all of the nervous system, you're doing certain things all at once. So she calls it like the hum and swallow, but you bite on a stick. So you bite on a stick 
And what that does is it deactivates your trigeminal nerve, which is a sympathetic um, nerve. There's some sympathetic afferent neurons on there. And then by biting on the stick, and then you take a deep breath in, you stimulate breathing in your nose, you hum, that activates your vagus nerve, and then you swallow. And then so when you swallow the right way, you're activating like cranial nerve seven, nine, and 10. And so we basically addressed all of it. One, two, one is smell, two is optical, three is your eye movement. So it's just, when you understand what all the cranial nerves do and you understand how to stimulate all of them, like this hum and swallow thing, I was like, this is nuts. I don't believe this, but <laughs> but it works. But it, hey, <laughs> it does work for some people. So you should talk to Mary Ellie about that. She'll, I will. She'll I will. <laughs> yeah, we started diving a little bit into the cranial nerves when we chatted. And it's funny yeah. because like I said, creating the course, I was like, oh gosh, how much do I go into all of this with in a Mayo course? Right. I'm like, I'm going to totally over. It's like supposed to be an intro to Mayo course for people who have never experienced this. I'm like, if I start jumping down into the cranial nerves, I'm going to lose them all. Like it's enough that they have to learn the anatomy and physiology of the muscles and just understand like, you know, the bones in our yeah. cranial. I, I have this slide so in my presentation where I show, okay, this is like the triad of things that we need to do. Anatomy, like structure, um, functional and neurological. And so mm -hmm. you can, you can touch on the neurological. I would just yeah. touch on it and say like, just know you've got these cranial nerves that control so much and you have multiple that are activated during the swallow. And, you know, this is the nervous system. It gets a little bit complex. It's a whole nother course. So if you want to learn this, you know, just understand that there is a neurological component to it. I think yeah. as long as you just make them aware of it, yeah, um, it helps because I mean, we know this, the suck, the swallow, the breathing are all our autonomic nervous system. It's automated. You can't, you can't control it. You can be conscious of it all day, but who has the capacity, the mental capacity to be conscious of their breathing all day? It's tough. I mean, you've yeah. been doing it, right? Yeah. Sometimes yeah. you're like, you forget, you probably catch yourself. You're like, Oh, I was mouth breathing. <laughs> Why was I mouth breathing? Well, you're busy doing other things and it's what your body knows. And so yeah. fighting against that is really hard when it's already yeah. programmed and ingrained in your neurological system. So. Yeah, no, I, I love that though. I mean, I think, and I think that's so key. I, when I was going through my expansion myself about 50% through the program, um, I was getting body work the whole time. I was working with a physical therapist tra chain trained, can't talk today through <laughs> um, PRI. And he okay. also was trained with a whole bunch of other very interesting individuals and did what he called modern counter strain technique, because he didn't, he's like, it's not your traditional counter strain and it's very light touch, but it also has to do a lot with resetting, you know, all kinds of systems throughout the body. And it was like, I would leave just feeling like I had this full body reset every single wow. time. It was phenomenal. What is this and called? So I can give you his information as Manny Kim. He's, um, I think it's like unlocking your body. Um, he's out of Maryland, but he right. also, I've had, I've had, <clears throat> Who was it? Brian. Oh gosh. I'm like, let me look his name up real quick. It'll pop up. Um, Brian, who he works with was on the podcast. And if I could remember off the top of my head, like what, you know, what numbers everybody was, that would always be great, but, yeah. <laughs> um, but that doesn't usually happen. So, but no, it's, it's really, they're doing some really interesting research and they've been waiting to put out a course until they had more research to back what they're saying, because, you know, everybody's going to come at you and say, like, you're completely off your rocker. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Um, which is unfortunate, but we, we, you understand from yeah. where we come from. Um, Brian Tucky, he's also a PT out of Maryland and Brian Tucky and Manny work. They kind of, you know, they do research, they create courses, they do stuff together. Um, but a lot of it has to do with mapping this all on your brain, on your, you know, on the cranium. Yes. And so it's just so phenomenal to like, you know, when he talks, like what I was, I would be getting the body work and he's like, I don't always talk to all my patients because they don't want to hear this or care, but like, he would just right. explain everything and he would go here on my head and go, Oh yeah. You know, you're really, you've got, we've got to go work down here on your leg. And he would go down to my leg and he'd find the point. And I was like, how did you do like nailed it? I'm like, how did you do that? And yeah. release that. And it was just, it was phenomenal. I'm like, I can't even explain what they do. It was just phenomenal. <laughs> so it's, it's so interesting because, um, 
that is where doing research is so tough, right? Because yeah. everything you do therapeutically is qualitative. Yes. How do you assess quality? And that's why a lot of doctors, like when you finally dive deep into this, you realize like the research might not ever get there. It might not ever get accepted because yeah. a lot of doctors are so quantitatively based in how they assess evidence. And it's like, they're going to, they're going to criticize your research. They're going to say like, oh, you did it based on how the patient feels, but that's really subjective. Like, yeah. how can you tell that the patient felt it? Was it, was it a placebo effect, you know? And so this is, this is why people in this space, like you get the work done yourself and you experience it yourself. And it's through your own experience that you're like, actually this did help. I believe <laughs> yeah, this is it, it helped me. Yeah. And I'm not yeah. just making it up. Like this really yeah. helps. And then when they, and when it gets explained to you from a physiologic perspective, then you're like, okay, yeah, everyone should be doing this. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I couldn't crank my appliance until I saw Manny at times, like I, about 50% of the way through the program, my body was kind of just like hard stop. And, yeah. and I was wearing a DNA Vivos appliance and he, I would see him and I could crank the appliance that day where I couldn't crank it the night before. I was like, it's just, it's not going in. This is really painful. I'm not convinced that this is actually beneficial to me without like any I need surgery else in place. I didn't do any surgery. Um, so, you know, not expanded enough in the palate. You probably I, need yeah, surgical no, I'm, yeah, I'm definitely considering additional <laughs> I can, expansion I can at this you point. to go to. <laughs> Perfect. I need to know who my contacts are down here in South Florida. That would be great if there's anybody local to me. Um, but no, it's, you know, I was excited because I'm like, my tongue does fit, right? But at rest and when sleeping, my tongue is not staying. So now I'm going is this because I know my turbinates are enlarged and we need to maybe reduce my turbinates? Like, okay, that would be a good thing to do anyways. But when Manny and I discovered, he was always like, something is off center here. And he thought my nose was crooked, which it is. I do have a deviated septum, but he was like, no, your maxilla is actually turned in on the left side. So when you look at my upper and lower central incisors, they don't match up. And it's the max. And, and as no matter how much work he did intraorally or he did on the body, we would get the maxilla to shift a bit. And he's like, I can feel the suture lines, you know, he's like, I can feel things shifting. It wouldn't hold. And that was the issue. It doesn't because hold when you don't used. If yeah. you didn't do surgery to open up the suture, it's like, it's impossible. It really yeah. is impossible. And like I explained to you about the expansion and widening out your nasal floor, you yeah. might not have to do turbinate reduction, but do you want to do palatal expansion? And that's the question a lot for adults, because there's a whole process in that, that you have to understand what that journey is, because when they do that sort of surgical expansion, you're going to end up with a space between your two front teeth for mm -hmm. a little bit. And then yeah. after they've created that space, after they've widened out your palate, I would do the body work at the same time. So you can release the fascia, allow things to fall into place on its own. And then and then do the orthodontics to bring the teeth together. But um, one thing, and this is where research, um, where the research is, is, you know, you can do this different like DNA vivo appliance. There's still a lot of studies that need to be done on that. What are they actually truly expanding the palate? I haven't seen it yet. I haven't. Mm. And that's, that's where there's like a disconnect. And I, and I love that sleep and expansion is all out there. And we're, we're, we're really trying to learn and understand it, but I think there's such a hype that we want to jump on doing these new novel things. Um, and that's why we say like the research needs to be done because we can't make claims that it's going to work when it might not. And so that's kind of your journey. And I've, I've seen this a lot for a lot of adults who did these other appliances and, you know, telling you that it was going to make space. It did it probably tipped your teeth out. You probably can place your tongue in the arch because it's wide enough, but you might still have a high palate still not going up all the way. And that might be why you're still mouth breathing in your sleep is because that's your tongue making contact to the palate. If it's not actually touching it during the day, it's not going to touch it at night either. And then you're going to end up mouth breathing. So Mary Ellie talks about that too. The, 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 posterior tongue has to lift up, up against the hard and soft palate. And mm -hmm. you might be able to get it up there when you're thinking about it consciously, but it might be too far because it's too high and it's too narrow that you're not actually getting it up there. 
So I don't know that's something I would consider. I would want to see your CBCT and actually measure it and see like yeah. what the shape of your palate is. And that, that I think will give you a lot of information of whether or not you should go forward with it. But, oh man, these people who do this, who do all the research, like I was talking about Dr. Stanley Liu and Dr. Audrey Yoon, they're, they're out here in California. <laughs> so lucky. <laughs> you should just fly out here and see them. <laughs> I know. I'm just going to make a trip out to Cali. <laughs> yeah. I'm out here. You can come stay Absolutely. with me. <laughs> I, love I love California. I haven't been in a very long time given this current state of affairs. I feel like I've just been mostly on the East coast, but yeah, no, it's been a while since we've been out to California. I do have a plane ticket to rebook that got canceled in the fall yeah. of 2020. So there, we go. <laughs> there we go. So let's talk, let's go back to like the earlier side of kiddos. Cause I know that's what you really specialize in treating in. And yeah. just tell me like, you know, cause I know that some of the biggest questions we get is how early can we expand? And, and everybody's heard me say on this podcast, not me, but other guests, you know, that some people will expand at age two. Um, mm -hmm. I know you do early intervention for that. So yeah. where are you with that? depends on the symptoms. So I'll give you an example. I have a, a boy who he's turning three this week. He's so cute, but I met him when he was like two years, two years and two and a half years old. So about six months ago. And, um, he, he has like the dark under eye circles. He is not sleeping well. He's snoring most of the night, all of these things happening. And the mom can tell behavior wise, you know, I know two-year-olds, they're toddlers. They talk about the terrible twos and they can be like, how do you know it's their behavior? They're just being a toddler. Well, I don't know. When you're a mom, you just know, you like mm -hmm. have that mommy gut feeling. And, and I see it too, actually, as a provider, I get two-year-olds that come in and can sit and play with one thing. You can distract them with a, to with a toy. And then you get other two-year-olds that come in you give them a toy and they're like, nope, I want to do this. And they're all over the place and they're jumping yeah. from one play experience to another. And so so he, he clearly snores. We sent him to an ear, nose and throat doctor who said tonsils are fine. Turbinates are fine. Adenoids are fine. You know, he's tongue tied. And I knew he was tongue tied. Mom knew he was tongue tied, but I was like, well, if he needs to get the surgery and he also needs tonsils and adenoids out, go to the ENT so they can do all of it at once while he's asleep. Now, some providers don't think that way. They get focused on the tongue tie. So think about, you know, we're all in our own little box as a dentist. And I'm like, okay, I only see tongue tie. And if I'm not thinking about the rest of the airway, I'm going to miss something. So I always send to the ENT first. So that's the first order of my treatment is making the proper referrals. And then the second thing is, is mom is like, okay, well, I want something done. He's clearly not sleeping well. There's so many neurocognitive effects, like study on brains. You can see they don't develop well when these kids don't sleep well. They have thinner yeah. gray matter in the prefrontal cortex. Um, once, once they're done developing, which 90% of it is done by the age of three, like you, you kind of miss the boat. So she's like, she understands this. And so she's like, I want him to breathe better now. So she wanted to do expansion. So we're working on that. I'm actually trying out Invisalign because one of the things that we do know about this young age group is their sutures are wide open still and their bone is so malleable. You can do things like Invisalign and an ALF and not have to do extreme expansion because just by doing myofunctional therapy, which he's doing and releasing the tongue, he will actually assist in his own growth and development. He can do it on his own if we teach him how to do it the right way. So that's something that, um, that we're doing. So I sent him to get, even though they don't start therapy right away, I always send them to the myofunctional therapist or he's working with a speech language pathologist, um, because that, that age group is difficult, right? You know, this, yeah. they, you can't tell them to do an exercise and expect them to like, go ahead and suction your tongue up. Like, yeah. no, two years old, three years old. Do they know what that means? Not right away. It takes time to get them there. Yeah. So I need them to be established with a therapist who knows how to do that therapy. And you do it through feeding most of the time, right? Yeah. As yeah. a speech language exactly. pathologist. And, and so for me as a, a dentist, I have to know and understand what that means. And so I can't just send to a dental hygienist who does myofunctional therapy. They don't have educational background in feeding and swallowing. So I always only work with speech language pathologists at this age group. So from zero to five, 
they're going to the SLP. Um, so he's paired up with a myofunctional therapist and the beauty and the reason why I'm choosing Invisalign, the ALF is another appliance, which you did the ALF, um, advanced light wire force appliance is it allows for tongue space. So they can, when I can widen them yes. and they can do the therapy at the same time, which is what I'm looking for. So when I think about these concepts of how am I going to do this treatment? What am I going to do? Why do I want to do it this way and not that way? Well, one putting in a bulky expander with this huge jack screw in the middle of the palate, it takes up the tongue space. So that doesn't help. And we're trying to get him in a positive direction that can sometimes negatively affect their function and teach them to swallow the wrong way. Cause they don't have the space. So, so he's, he's paired up with the SLP just from myofunctional therapy alone. Let me tell you a little background story on him. He was seen in another state first and he was seeing an SLP in another state, but they didn't do myofunctional therapy. He's been delayed in speech for a while. Once he started with this other SLP that I referred him to and started to do myofunctional therapy, his speech started to improve. So myofunctional therapy alone can improve that speech. And it's also an indication that even if they're tongue tied, they should still be able to figure it out. So myofunctional therapy is important. Um, and then I just delivered his Invisalign last week. So we're going to see how it goes in the long term. But my colleague, Dr. Audrey Yoon, she sees this age group all the time. And she's kind of my, she is my mentor and oversees these cases with me so that I can do them because, um, yeah, we don't have enough providers doing this. So I'm, I, I'm doing it now. And, um, but I didn't release the tongue yet. I didn't do it yet. And so that timing's important. Is he ready for it? Does he have the tongue strength and endurance? for the procedure. I need that to be figured out first. And I always ask my therapist, like, do you think they're ready? Even though I'm the doctor doing the surgery, I have my criteria of when I want them ready, but I still always ask the therapist and I tell the parents this, I won't do it unless the therapist thinks they're ready. And the therapist isn't going to say they're ready if they're not compliant with their therapy. And so it is up to you as the mom or dad to do the exercises with them at home. So you go see the therapist. They're going to say, okay, this is our evaluation assessment. This is what they have going on. This is our plan for them. These are the exercises I want you to start with. You go home, you do those exercises and kids learn so fast, so fast. So yeah. a week of it, usually a week of it, if they're diligent about it, they come back, then they're like, oh, you've progressed, you're improving. All right, let's try this other set of exercises, get these other muscles stronger because there's multiple muscles involved in swallowing. So work on the next set, doing great, progressing. All right. Once you can get them to do the things we need them to do. And for me, I want them to have good lingual palatal suction. I want them to not have a sensitive gag reflex. That's the neurological component for me. Um, I want to know that things are in line and that they can progress and function well, because after a tongue tie release, one of the things I don't want to do is make a promise to a parent that I'm going to release a tongue tie and it's going to improve everything when realistically it might not. I, and I might not, I won't know those answers. The therapist will know that answer. You're going to assess them and you're going to say, well, he has low muscle tone. I don't know how much improvement we can get. Let's be realistic with the mom. You know, this can help but we got to let you know, we don't know how much it can help. And that allows the parents the opportunity to decide, do we really want to do this now? Or do we want to wait? Because it still is a surgical procedure. Mm -hmm. And so it's not so black and white for me to say like, yeah, I'm going to do the procedure now. Like releasing the tongue tie now is going to help. Um, it's always a team approach. So that's, that's my, I love, I mean, I love that. I, you know, I feel like so many of us think in black and white, but that's not really truly how it works with these kids, with anybody really, but especially these young pediatric cases, you know, when you're talking to a child who's eight, 10, 15, an adult who can volitionally engage in therapy without a parent's input and do the exercises. And, you know, I've had some really responsible eight-year-olds where like, we really didn't need much parent interaction that they, mm -hmm. they were able to carry out their own home program. And it's incredible. But when you're working with these pediatrics that are little, it it's all on the parents. I mean, the parents have to be that therapist between sessions truly, right. because, you know, we're sitting in front of a mirror, we're imitating what the parent's doing. And it's like, the parent has to learn it. 
Mm-hmm. And a lot of the parents realize at that point that they're tied or that they have, you know, their own issues going on, which is always interesting convers- tech yeah. conversation to have. Um, yeah. but it's so fascinating because, you know, not fascinating, but it really truly is amazing to see the progress that can be made when, it sh- when the team pulls together. And so I yeah. love that you have these upfront conversations. I also love that you tell parents, Hey, this is the reality. It may help. It may not help. This might be the time. This might not be the time, you know? And mm-hmm. I also love that you have the therapist sign off on it in a sense, because I've yeah. worked with some providers in the DC Metro area where they do the same thing, where they tell parents, I, I physically need a signature from the therapist that your child is ready before we will complete the release. Because a lot of parents just walk in and go, I want my child's tongue released and some providers right. will do it. And that's they harmful. Do. It's not helpful to these children. Usually and they don't know until like maybe a year or two later, sometimes they don't know. Yeah. There's always, let me tell you when you do it, when I do a tongue tie release, there's always an immediate improvement always. But if we don't manage the aftercare the right way, then they just relapse. Everything goes back to the same thing. Like they reattach and, or they didn't learn proper function. And so they're still stuck in their habits with low tongue posture that the fibers over time, they go back to tightening up, they go back to shortening. And, you know, it, it's only going to heal in the way that we want it to, if we encourage it to, but if you're not doing the therapy to encourage that type of healing, to elongate the fibers, to get this wide range of motion with the tongue, it's going to heal based on where they're using it already. Yeah. So it's, it's just, yeah, the team approach. So important. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I, and I love that you're reinforcing that because I feel like I, I scream this from the rooftops. If we release a tongue, that's just living on the floor of the mouth and nobody's helping retrain the tongue, you know, this is like, you keep saying, this is neurological, this is muscular. This is, there's so much going on and we have to it's not even re-education for these kids. It's education for the first time. They've never, they're not being rehabbed. They're being habilitated. These kids have never had proper function of their tongue. And so, you know, we need to basically train them for the first time. How, like you said, full range of motion, it's, it's multi-directional. There's it's multifunctional. There's so many things that our tongue does that I don't think people realize until they're in front of a myofunctional therapist or an, or, you know, a dentist like yourself who gets it Mm -hmm. that, just, you know, and, and like you said, it can also, you know, it can reattach if it's just right. sitting there, it can reattach worse right. than it was prior to coming in for the release. And now we've got a yeah. bigger problem because now we're going to see most likely a, either the same function or it'll decrease. We're going to have more of an issue. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, yeah. it's, uh, yeah, it's I'm, such I'm a curious tricky. to see how all of this will be in the future, because I think one of the problems right now is a lot of people are getting on board and understanding. And, and I love that. I love that more and more people are getting on board, but then they're going, I think there are some dentists that are going back to their practice and doing these releases because they heard somewhere that it could help. And then they're seeing yeah. the improvement and then they're like, Oh, it did help. And then they keep doing it but they're not seeing the long-term they follow up maybe one or two times and they're like, Oh, they're good. And then the parents also don't know what to look at. So then they're like, Oh, my dentist did it and it helped and everything's good. But you know, you didn't address all the other things that come with it. And so it might solve the problem in this moment. Unfortunately for kids, it will, but when they start growing more and they go through more growth spurts, that's when it reveals itself to being a problem still. And that doesn't happen until years down the line. It's, it's, so I, I, I want to encourage all myofunctional therapists or speech language pathologists, dental hygienists that do myofunctional therapy to let their patients know that it's, it's not just this one and done release the tongue and we're good. We, we have to, like you said, I like what you said. We're not rehabilitating it. We're habilitating it. Like we need to help with neuromuscular reeducation and, and get them to learn a different muscular pattern of functioning, neuromuscular yeah. pattern of functioning. So, um, yeah, I, I, yeah, we're on the same page. We're preaching. On the fire. <laughs> I mean, totally. I think it's, I think it's amazing. And I think it's, you know, everybody, like I said, just wants like these very clear cut treatment plans and orders. And I, and it's so individualized. You have to get yeah. comfortable living in the gray. Like you just have yeah. to get comfortable knowing that it's going to be different from one patient to the next. And the more patients that you work with, the more you take that team approach and you bring all the different, mm-hmm. you know, brains to the table so that we can all talk about what we're seeing from our individual training and perspectives, 
the better we can make that individualized care plan for each patient. So absolutely a hundred percent. And the end of the day, we need to learn how to approach this the right way, because the people who end up suffering isn't us, it's our patients. They're the ones who have to bear the bulk of the problems and issues that come. And psychologically, it's so hard on parents when they're putting not just time and effort and energy, but financially they're putting, they're investing in this and hoping it'll work. And we can't just do it and not, not let it work. Like I'm so results driven. I I need this work (laughs) long-term. I don't want you to come back to me years later and tell me it didn't help. Although I do Mm -hmm. tell my, all of my patients, I'm like, listen, if later down the line, you're still having issues, come back to me. Don't just assume that it didn't work. You know, maybe something else needs to be done. Let me help you figure that out. Let me help you um, work through what they need next. If what we did didn't help because we're still learning. I'm constantly learning. I can't even tell you, I'm learning from you from having this conversation. I'm, I learned this past weekend when I was at Tufts university, I just, there's so much that we as dentists and therapists have to learn from other disciplines in order to make these right decisions. And so if there's anything I can tell parents, it's find an experienced provider. I I love that people, more and more people want to do therapy, myofunctional therapy. I love that more and more dentists want to get into the airway space, but, you know, learn from the people who have the experience and who can tell you like long-term outcomes, what they've been seeing. Um, and, and, and be, just be mindful. I want everyone to just be more mindful, but, but, but it's exciting. We're all going in the it same is. direction. It is. <laughs> it is. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you. This has been amazing. Thank you for sharing all of your knowledge with us. Yeah. You're so welcome. This is fun. I always love talking about this. Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you want to hear more of these Mayo Tots airway and feeding related episodes, be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash the untethered podcast. If you found value, others you know in this space will too. So be sure to share this episode on your social media platforms and join us over on Facebook, on my Facebook page at Hallie Balkan Biz, on Instagram at, at Hallie Balkan. And you can head over to the untetheredpodcast.com to grab a copy of the show notes um, where you can also subscribe to be kept up to date on the latest podcast episodes. 